Well, did you enjoy the baptisms? Wasn't that great? Boy, I got to tell you, next hour, we have a way bigger group getting baptized next hour. And we actually have baptisms in all six of our services, us, our campuses and everything. So I um, encourage you to, to tune in. Maybe you can stay a little while and line up and kind of see at the beginning of next service or get home and tune in online. Uh, but a, a crowd of people next service were just excited about those that we saw today, first service, following the Lord in believer's baptism. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, I, I should have jumped in on that. I should have done that. Yeah, I've come to Christ. I've put my trust in Jesus, but I've never been biblically baptized, which means after I've done that, I've never been dunked underwater as a public testimony of the decision that I've made. If you want to make that, if you've made that decision, you want to follow in believer's baptism, then I encourage you, call into the church office. You can call in right now and leave a message 419-332-2623, or contact our church office this week. It needs to be like tomorrow or Tuesday so we can get everything done, because otherwise we're going to take things down and switch things. So we'll let you be decide that. If you, need to, if you need to jump in, let us know. We're in a series, Dumb Things Smart People Believe. And uh, as we look at that today, we realize uh, that our culture sort of drives us. And I guess it's always been that way for all cultures. They're, they really influence us. And today, we, we have a culture that is driven a lot by emotion. I mean, the world constantly tells us how to live, how to think, how we should feel, what's right. It redefines continually sort of what's right and wrong. It tells us that we should do what feels right, tells us to be happy, tells us you do you, and it, it runs on emotion with slogans like this, let your conscience be your guide, or follow your heart, or trust yourself. I mean, this is what we hear all the time, but the question is, and by the way, it's in our culture everywhere, in our movies, in our children's movies, in music. I mean, we, it's everywhere. And the question is, is this right? How does this square with Scripture? Is this really good advice? Well, that's why we're going to dive in. Because Jesus had a different take on this. Jesus had a, a different way of viewing this. He actually, Jesus, warned us about our hearts. We see this one time, uh, and we see it all over the New Testament, but specifically one time. The cultural leaders of Jesus' day, they're challenging Jesus because he's not following the rules the way they think the rules should be followed. And it has to do with something called Old Testament clean laws. And those were all those laws in the Old Testament that say, don't touch this, it's unclean, and don't eat this, like can't eat pork, and this, that, and the other thing. And that make, because that, those actions would make them ritually unclean. And that was really all just a visual aid. It was all just an object lesson that God was using to teach people how they need to be clean before God. And when they were questioning Jesus, because he, specifically his disciples, weren't following that, Jesus talks about the heart. And so I want us to dive into Mark chapter 7, 
And if you're using one of our Bibles on the back of the chair rack, it's page 1003. And here's what Jesus said, beginning in verse 14. After, so they've been debating this a little bit. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Sort of like drop the mic, walk off, he's done. Boom. And they're all trying to absorb what Jesus has just said because he's telling them something that they've not heard before, which they were all about these little details of the law. And Jesus says, hey, in our natural state, we cannot be right before God because of what's in our heart. That's our problem. Well, people didn't like that then. And by the way, people don't like to hear that today. People don't like to think of God as a holy, righteous creator of the universe whom we stand guilty and condemned before him. They don't like to think about God that way. Now, the disciples, after Jesus drops the mic, he leaves, he goes into a house of a friend, and the disciples following follow him in, and then they ask like a follow-up question to this because it's kind of blowing their mind too. So they're asking, and that's what happens in the next verse, in verse 17. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, and this was told earlier, and he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So Jesus says, hey, you don't get it. We're all focused because the Old Testament laws keep us separate, keep us focused on God, that you're all worried about what you eat is defiling you. But Jesus says, it's what's in your heart that defiles you. It's what's in your heart that makes you not right with God. That's what he's telling them. And then he lists off all these sins, all these wrongs. He says, all that stuff, all this list, that's inside you. That's in your heart. That's the source. It comes from us. And we have a lot of ways of of sort of getting out of this. We talked about uh, forgiving and forgetting last time and relationships. And you know how it is in relationships. Sometimes sometimes you get in an argument and somebody will say things that they shouldn't say. And then later they'll say, I know I said that, but I didn't mean it. See, the problem with that is, no, you said it. 
What you probably mean to say, probably the truth is that you didn't mean to say it because it came from somewhere. It may not be true, but it came from in your heart. I mean, that's kind of the reality of it. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Now, the heart in Scripture is the center. You know, we have a physical heart, and just like in English, we use that word two different ways. Same way with Greek and Hebrew. They use the word two different ways. And so you have this physical heart, but that word heart also stands for the center of our thought, feelings, our moral life. Basically, in the Bible, our heart is us. The heart is who we are. And so here's The stuff in us, we don't want people to see, right? We we talked in the last few weeks about we we wouldn't want everybody to read our mind all the time. What we thought about this person or the person who cut us off in traffic or the person, you know, or who we're arguing with or who we don't like or somebody. We don't want somebody to to know all that about us, but it's inside there. And so Jesus is warning us, and here's what, that we need to know before we follow the slogan, follow your heart, here's what Jesus wants you and me to know. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts, individually, our hearts are deceitful. Don't follow your heart because your heart is sick. Now, there's a verse for this in Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, following your heart is what causes people to break up marriages. Following your heart is what causes people to do things that just destroy families, and it's all done because, hey, I'm following my heart, but you're leaving wreckage behind you. Following your heart will make a mess. It can lead to misery. And, and I got to tell you, there's a whole book in the Bible that talks about people following their heart. It's in the Old Testament. It's called the book of Judges. And in this book of Judges, The whole book is about a group of people, the Israelites, and they keep doing their own thing. They keep doing what they think is right in their heart, and it's just this depraved cycle where they just fall into worse and worse alienation from God, and then God, and and then they they get the the natural consequences of all that. Then they cry out to God. Then God sends a deliverer who's called a judge, and he's an imperfect person. But then they kind of crawl out of that hole. And then as soon as that happens, they repeat the cycle again and again and again. And then all through the book, it gets worse and worse. Actually, at the very end of the book is the worst story. At the end of the book, they keep getting worse and worse and worse. And then finally, the last story There's no judge anymore. There's nobody that will stand up for right. I mean, you should read the book. The last story, if you don't remember that, let me just tell it to you. And this is a little bit of a PG story, so if you have any kids, just cover their ears, all right? So this is in Judges. It's the last three chapters, 19, 20, and 21, and here's what happens. A Levite from the tribe of Levi, remember 12 times. Well, the context, let me give you a broader context before I jump into that. Remember? We have Abraham, Abraham has a family, and then they end up enslaved in 
Egypt. They're in slavery for 400 years. And then God raises up a guy named Moses. Moses then delivers them out of bondage. And they're going to go to the promised land. But they sort of mess up and don't really follow God. And they end up wandering in the promised land for 40 years Uh, wandering in the wilderness before they cross into the promised land. Moses dies. Another guy takes over named Joshua, contemporary of Moses, and he kind of leads them to take the land. And so they sort of conquer the land, and the 12 tribes sort of divide it up, but they don't really eliminate all the people in the land, which is always a problem for them. Now, this is a time in history before there were ever any kings in Israel. And now at this time, there's a Levite man, he's actually from Ephraim, and he, ta- he has a concubine, which right there, you're going, okay, here's a Levite, they're the priests, and this isn't his wife, it's a concubine, which means he probably purchased her as a slave, although as a concubine, she's not really a slave anymore, but he, and he probably just has her for sexual gratification. And so his concubine commits adultery on him. So she has an affair, and then she runs off to her father's house. After about four months, this Levite, he goes to the father's house who lives in Bethlehem, right next to Jerusalem, and he travels to Bethlehem to the father's house to get his concubine. And the father and him spend some time, and the father keeps delaying him to leave. I mean, he's going to leave with her. He kind of reconciles the relationship. But the father whether he likes this guy so much or he just wants a few more days with his daughter even though she's been there four months, I don't know. But he keeps delaying him and the, and the Levite keeps waiting one more day and one more day and finally he gets frustrated and he leaves like in the afternoon, which is not a good time to travel because there's no kings, there's no law enforcement in the land and so after nightfall, it's like the Wild West out there. Well, so he's traveling with a servant and his concubine and they're going through, and the most natural thing would be to stop in Jerusalem. That was, it's the closest town. But the Jerusalem at this point in history is not an Israelite city, so he doesn't want to do that. So he goes to another town called Gibeah. And Gibeah is the town of the Benjamites, and so that's a good thing. And he goes into the town, and in those days, there were really very few uh, hotels or inns or anything like that. This is even before the first century. And, and so you relied on the hospitality of others. So he goes into the square of the city... But nobody will take him in. And finally, this older man comes out from the fields and says, well, what are you doing here? And the guy says, well, you know, we're just traveling through, but nobody will take us in. Even though we have our own food and our own fodder for, they have a couple of donkeys with them. You know, we've got everything we need. We just don't have a place to stay. And the man says, well, stay with me. And so they, they uh, have dinner together and they're there. Well, then the men of Gibeah come out and surround the house And they say, we want this Levite guy, send him out because we want to have sex with him. So they want to rape the Levite. Well, the Levite, they don't, the guy doesn't want to send the Levite out. And so they have this big discussion, but the men are starting to pound on the doors and start to break in the doors. And so finally the Levite sends out his concubine and she is raped all night long. In the morning, they find when they open the door that she has crawled to the threshold of the door and she's just laying there. And so he gets her and, and he's trying to revive her, and, but she ends up dying. And the Levite is so incensed, he goes on to, to his town in Ephraim and then he dismembers his concubine. That's why I said cover the kids. You know, he dismembers his concubine into 12 pieces. And he sends a piece to each tribe in Israel, the 12 tribes. 
And he kind of tells him what happens, although he sort of edits the part that makes him look bad because he kind of failed to protect her or whatever. But anyway, the country is outraged. And so they all respond and 400,000 Israelite warriors show up and band together to go in and punish this town of Gibeah. But Gibeah is a Benjamite town, and the Benjamites decide they're not going to give up the men responsible for doing this. So all of a sudden, a battle is set. And so the Israelites, they do battle with the Benjamites, and they lose. Like 18,000 Israelites are killed. And so the next day, they line up again, they fight again, and Israel loses again against the Benjamites, and there's not that many of them. There's only 25,000 of them, and they lose again, and 22,000 Israelites are killed. So they're asking God, although they never asked God about anything before, you know, hey, should we keep doing this? And God's like, yeah, whatever. And so they, they go in, and then they finally kill the Benjamites. They kill over 25,000 Benjamites, and they almost wipe out the entire tribe. There's only 600 men of the whole tribe left. So they, they wipe out Benjamin, almost, almost extinguish the entire tribe. And then after all the bloodshed is over, they start kind of grieving in Israel. Wow, you know, we've been 12 tribes. We're supposed to be 12 tribes. At the end, we're supposed to have 12 tribes. And we basically just wiped out a tribe. So then they decide, and here we have 600 men, but they don't have wives. We need to get them wives to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. So then they realized when they all turned out to attack Gibeah that there was one town in Israel that didn't provide any men. So the army goes over there and they wipe out that town, an Israelite town, except for 400 women they find that are virgins that haven't been married. And they take those 400 women and they give them as wives to the 600 men. Of course, that didn't help 200 that were left out, right? And so then they come up with another plan where they say, okay, you 200, you can go to this town and there's going to be a festival and you could kidnap 200 wives, and we're going to sort of close our eyes to that and let you do that so you can repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, it is messed up. Messed up. Here you have a whole group of people, a whole nation basically responding to an injustice that happened to a young lady. She was raped and killed. And then Everybody wants to come and do the right thing, which is punish them. And when the story ends, 65,000 people are dead. Actually, that's just the warriors. More than that, two towns have been pretty much wiped out. 600 girls have been abducted, kidnapped, and forced to marry somebody. And then there's this phrase that keeps happening all through the book of Judges. This is the last story. And, it, and it's this. And people did whatever was right in their own eyes. People did whatever was right in their own eyes. 
The priest has a concubine that's messed up to begin with. He didn't protect her. He treated her badly. He mutilates her body. He edits the truth to make things look better. There's outrage in the country. Bloodshed begins. Blood is spilt everywhere. Everybody follows their hearts to punish others. And even when they gather for justice, it's just a slaughter. And the last verse in Judges says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which is what's stated repeatedly over and over and over in the book. And we hear that, and we feel morally superior. Like, you know, we look at that, and we're like, wow, that is messed up. Those people are just blind, groping in the dark. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what justice is. But we have no right to feel morally superior. Because our culture is sinking into sin. And and because we're immersed in our culture, we don't even notice it. I mean, you just look in the last 50 years. I know a lot of you haven't been around 50 years, so it's hard to do. But I'm telling you, things have changed a lot. We've normalized sexual sin. It's everywhere. Movies, pornography. You know, the norm now is for people to live together before they get marriage. That's sexual sin too. And no doubt there are people in that situation here. Yeah, I know, I'm just telling you what God says. Same-sex marriage. I mean, on and on it goes. And that's not the worst of it. We routinely kill babies. Since in the 70s, Roe v. Wade, a Supreme Court decision that, if you ever read that and figured out the the logic behind that, it's bizarre. Since then, 62 million babies killed. You know, a about a million babies every year. Babies that people would adopt because we have a shortage of kids to, to adopt. You see, we see the immorality in other cultures, but we're, we're sort of blind to the immorality in our own culture. And within our own culture, because our heart's deceitful, we see the immorality in other people, other individuals in our culture, without seeing the immorality in our own hearts. That's what Jesus is warning us about. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, number one, before you... Follow your heart. Know your heart is deceitful. Second thing you need to know. Before you let your conscience be your guide, know that your heart will mislead your conscience. Now, conscience is kind of interesting because there's no Hebrew word, so it's only in the New Testament in Greek. But there's a, the conscience is connected to the heart, but they're distinct. They're not exactly the same thing. And the way I would try to describe it biblically is to say our heart is who we are. Our heart are our standards, what we think is right. That's our heart. And our conscience is that voice that speaks to us out of our heart, especially when we violate our heart's standards. Then our conscience speaks to us and says, you shouldn't have done that because that's wrong. So Our conscience speaks out of the heart, especially when our actions violate our heart. 
But because of our hearts, our conscience can't be trusted. We want to use our conscience as a thermometer to sort of figure out where we're at, you know, how, where are we at on the, on the scale. But actually, our conscience is just a thermostat we set. I mean, think about it. How many of you are married and you have the thermostat wars? You know, because it can't be cold enough. I mean, you know, I mentioned before that Pam and I were camping for the first time in our life. We have, actually have a camper that has an air conditioner, which is weird to me. And so on the way out, when we were camping sort of off the interstate, we used that. And Pam's like, well, I don't want to leave this on all night. I'm like, leave that on all night. You know, we need, I want that thing blowing on me full blast all night long. And I'm the same way at home. But Pam, you know, she wants it not so cold. You know, we, we're like that. Then we get up in the mountains. We don't need it because in the mountains it's 40 degrees at night. So that worked out great. That's, that's what's great about camping in the mountains. It's cool at night. But we think that our conscience is the thermometer, but it's just the thermostat. It's set to our calibration. Our conscience is set to the calibration of our own heart, and that cannot be trusted. That's the problem. It's too subjective to work as an absolute authority in our life because it's based on our personal calibration, not a subjective calibration, even when we think we've aligned it with the Bible. Here's what Paul says. This is really interesting to me, talking about the conscience in 1 Corinthians 4.4. Listen to what he says. Because he's talking about having a clean conscience. 1 Corinthians 4.4. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. So just in that one little verse, here's what Paul's basically saying. My conscience is clear. My conscience is clear. My conscience knows of nothing that I've done. My conscience is clear in this matter that he's talking about. But because of that, I'm not acquitted. Because of that, I'm not judged innocent. Because my conscience is not my judge. God is my judge. And so if Paul... Maybe the greatest Christian that ever lived, he doesn't trust his conscience. Maybe we should slow our roll when we start trusting our own conscience. Does that make sense? That's what Scripture's teaching us. I mean, we can go probably to any jail or prison and talk to people who said, well, I'm in here, but yeah, I'm only in here because I followed my heart or, you know, I let my conscience be my guide. That probably wouldn't surprise us. But it's the same in this room. We default in our culture to thinking this is how we judge right and wrong. And, and, and so you could push back. And you can say, well, Kevin, whoa, if our heart is so bad and our conscience is so bad, then why did God give it to us? What about that? Why would God even give us a conscience? That's a great question. God gave us a conscience, if you want to say it that way, but we've corrupted it because we have sinned. 
We've done things wrong. And we've done that so much that it has corrupted our conscience. But it's still useful. Even our corrupted conscience is still useful to us in this way. It's like a traffic light, in a sense. Our conscience still works as a caution. When we're doing something and then we start thinking, wow, I don't know if this is right. Your conscience bothers you. That's a great caution light. That's a great yellow light. A yellow light, I know some of you don't know this, but a yellow light means slow down. Because I know some of you, yellow light, floor it. You got to get there before the green. But actually, a yellow light's intended to say, slow down, get ready to stop. Or it can serve as a great red light. Whoa, stop, don't do it. But it works terribly as a green light. You see, our conscience is useful to check our actions, to slow our roll when we're doing something. Hey, wow, better be cautious. Hey, maybe I shouldn't do this. But it's terrible if that's what we're doing, if that's what we're using to justify our actions. Well, I did this because I was just following my heart. Very dangerous. It's terrible as an assurance of God's approval because it often conflicts with the Word of God. So we need to know that our hearts are sick before we follow our hearts. We need to know that they've affected, warped our conscience before we let our conscience be our guide. And then there's just one more thing that we need to know, that Jesus can cleanse and change our heart. Even our own flawed sense of justice. I mean, like the Israelites in Judges, they know something has to be done. But they all just kind of react And blood is spilt everywhere. I mean, just people are dying left and right. Because one guy who kind of, something terrible, he didn't really protect her, and he kind of edits the truth. I mean, it's still terrible, but that guy was responsible for some of that. Even our flawed sense of justice knows when something's not right. Even we know that wrongs should be punished, that that should happen. It's the right thing. Wrongs can't just be unpunished, or then there is no right and wrong. It's just a a soup, a mess. The problem is, it's hard for us to sense how deep our wrongs are, are. It's hard for us to understand just how deep our sins run. And the reason that's hard is we keep comparing ourselves to other people. But God's telling us other people are not the standard. God's word is the standard. What God says is right is the standard. And when we compare ourselves to God's standard, we come up way, way short. And as Jesus told people in the Sermon on the Mount, 
hey, you think you've, you've kept this commandment because you haven't committed adultery or you haven't murdered somebody, but I'm telling you, if you've lusted or if you've hated, you've basically broken the commandment there. And then we realize at an even deeper level, because he says, it's in your heart. That's where that comes from. And we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. When David sinned against Bathsheba, he couldn't really see it. He was king, kind of get to do whatever you want. Until Nathan the prophet showed up. I don't know if you know this story, but Nathan tells a story about another guy, and David's like, that guy deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're that guy. And when David understands the depth of his own sin, that's so hard to, to see, in Psalm 51, 10, he writes this as he cries out to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. God can change our hearts. In that Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that Jesus preached, remember one thing he said? One of the things he said was, blessed are the pure of heart because they will see God. Our hearts need cleansing. We can't do it like the first century people thought they could do it by observing laws. And we can't do it like we think we can do it today by being just and merciful and doing good things trying to be moral in our own eyes. That doesn't hold up. There's only one way to be pure in heart, and we can't do it ourselves. And so the question is simply this, as we wrap this part up. Have you come to the point in your life where you've come to realize that your own sin that lurks in your own heart privately that that makes you unfit to be in God's presence. Because that's true of all of us. And until you understand that, you'll never understand the good news that God is giving you. That good news is when you understand the depth of your sin and you understand that God is the most just person in the universe, and you know that sin then therefore has to be punished. That's all bad news, but the good news is that God loves you. God loves more than any other person in the universe. As our creator, transcendent God, he loves us, and out of his love, he made a way for us to be able to be forgiven without violating his justice. And to do that, he allowed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth, walk this planet, and ultimately give his life as a punishment, as a payment for my sin and for your sins. For my sins and for all your sins.
if we turn to him in faith. If we acknowledge our sin, acknowledge what Christ has done, and put all of our trust, our faith, our belief in Christ and Christ alone. Not Christ plus, compared to other people, we're pretty good. Just Jesus. That's all we have, just Jesus. And when we put our faith in him alone, that's when we become a Christian. That's what all those people this morning who got baptized... That's what they were saying publicly that they had done. Some may have done that just within the last few weeks. Some may have done that years ago and just never got baptized. And next service, it's the same thing. They're saying publicly through what God told us to do, to go through baptism as a way, because we can't see the change in their heart that easily unless we know them really well. And God says, this is the symbol that says you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you're a new person. The old person is dead. The new person is alive. You, you have a new life in Christ. And once we do that, we can begin to trust our heart more as it is centered on Jesus. But it's never the authority God's word is. I'm going to do one more thing before our team comes out and prays since I haven't talked that long, so that's good. I'm trying to make up for last week. But uh, if you've not made that decision... Do it today. It's the most important decision that you could ever make. It's just a decision to trust Christ. You can express that through prayer. And if you're trusting Christ today, and as far as you know, the first time that you fully understood that, fully put your trust in Jesus, then I would invite you to pray a prayer like I'm going to lead you in. Just make this prayer in your own words your prayer. You can do that silently before God because he knows everything. Let's bow our heads. And if you want to tell God that you're putting your trust in him for the first time today, do something like this in your own words. Father God, I understand that I've sinned against you and it's worse than I really know because of your holiness. And God, I understand that me doing good things can never fix that. That's what I'm supposed to do. I don't get extra credit for that. And so I have no way to fix my heart. But you made a way. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins and and God, right now, I'm putting my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. And I'm inviting you to invade my life and help me to live for you. In Christ's name, amen. With our heads bowed, let me just ask the question before we go. If you, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I don't want to violate your trust or anything like that. And I'm not going to call you out or make you do anything. But if you prayed that prayer, I would, I would like to know. And while everyone's heads are bowed, if you just kind of make eye contact with me, put your hand up just so I can see you so we can pray for you. Just 
Thank you. Just put it, put it up and back down. Just let me see you. Put it up and back down. Thank you. Let's stand together. We do have a packet of information, whether you raised your hand or not. Uh, if you'd like to swing into room one, we have a little cloth bag, just a little packet of information that will help you kind of walk you through the decision that you just made today, free gift from our church. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we thank you for loving us. And God, as we sing to you now, God, we do it with hearts focused on you. And we thank you for your love that we could never deserve. God, it humbles us and breaks us. And we respond to you in love and gratitude. God, thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.